I want to read this morning, beginning in verse 14. Last Sunday morning, we examined verse 14 just by itself. We'll press on this morning and see how far we get. But let's give attention to the reading of God's word. 2 Peter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Let's pray one more time as we come to God's word. We have sung, O Lord, really the prayer of our hearts, but we just pause to acknowledge again this presence of your Holy Spirit and you who are the living breath of God. We do ask that you would cause your word to come alive in us, that Christ may be seen in all we do, in our thought and attitude as we wait for his coming. We ask in his name. Amen. The dominant theme here at the close of Second Peter, and indeed a dominant theme in the entire letter, is persevering in waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And in that time of waiting that we live godly lives, that is, lives that are in agreement with what God has spoken in his holy word. We are waiting for the return of Christ. We must be. And I've noted several times that increasingly in our present time, I mean, right now and even in the last few years, there is a very concerning trend of churches increasingly neglecting the doctrine of the return of Christ and the promises of God concerning the things to come. This is a very sad development. And we don't want to have any part of it. We want to give ourselves to the whole counsel of God's word. That means that as you come and worship here at Reformation Bible Church, as you attend various Bible classes, Sunday school classes, you should expect that you're going to hear from the Old and New Testaments or the older and newer. It really is one word that you'll learn wisdom from Proverbs or praise from Psalms. You'll read history, learn history from the Old Testament books or Acts in the New Testament. You'll learn instruction for godly living in, in Ecclesiastics or Proverbs or 
the New Testament letters. You'll learn how to, we'll learn together how to live as Christians and organize ourselves as a church, and that we will regularly learn what God has said concerning the things to come. Some scholars have done a lot of work and have concluded that nearly a third, one-third of the Bible speaks of things to come in the future. And so this trend of considering what God has promised about the future as somehow being um, too difficult or too uh, controversial is, is a trend that we don't want to have anything of. We want to give ourselves to the whole Bible because it's all God's word. And there's an old saying that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And that's true of you and true of me. And so we want to be those who are looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with him, the day of the Lord, which for believers is a a day of a fearful day of joy, and it is for unbelievers a day of judgment and wrath, as we've learned in Second Peter chapter 3. We are looking for these things, verse 14. We are looking for these things. As we saw last Sunday morning, we are people who are looking for. We are taking God's word at face value, and we believe that Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, glorified in his body, right this moment, breathing at the right hand of God the Father, will one day soon return to this earth, walk on it in glory, and that he will destroy the ungodly and all those opposed to him and to his kingdom, and that he will, by his rod of iron, Psalm 2, impose his glorious and good and rightful reign over every square inch of this globe that is presently in rebellion against God. This is our hope. This is what we're about. It's not merely a change in our hearts here and now. That happens through the gospel. But the bulk of our hope is on the glorious things to come. So the questions here at the close of of chapter 3 that Peter is addressing are, are, are several, and this morning I want to frame our consideration around three questions. Um, three questions that what Peter's teaching addresses. Uh, three questions. Uh, the first one, and I have several truths that we learn in response to this question, but, but the question I think that one of the questions we can say that Peter is addressing is this. What do we make of the long wait for the promised return of Christ? What do we make of this? That Christ has not returned now for nearly 2,000 years. How are we to understand that? And Peter has been addressing this for some time in chapter 3. There are false teachers who mock the very idea of the visible, physical return of Christ, the literal fulfillment of of God's kingdom on earth. Peter's clearly taught, you don't want to do that. But he gives us, here at the close of, of the letter, several truths that answer that question. First of all, what are we to make of the long wait for the promised return of Christ? Well, first, We've learned, and we learn in verse 15, 
it's not long according to the Lord's timing. (laughs) It's long according to our timing. But for the Lord, Peter has already pointed out in verse 8 of chapter 3, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. So we need to keep that in mind as we wait, as we long for the end of this present evil age, of our being Uh, the church being raptured and meeting the Lord in the air as we wait for the fulfillment of what God has promised in Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year tribulation, and sometime at the close of that, the return of Christ. We need to remember that though it's been 2,000 years, it's not long according to God's timing. And we need to remember that Abraham was alive when God promised to him the gospel promises about 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. So I made that point a long time ago in this series that we are, we are well within biblical kind of links between promise and fulfillment. It could be another 1,000 years. I don't think so. I don't know. I'm not going to guess, speculate, but we are to anticipate our Lord's coming at any time. And remember, first of all, that this long wait, and it does feel long, and I think that honors the Lord. (laughs) For kids, even though it's December 20th, Christmas feels a long ways away. And that feeling, the kids, like, when is it going to come, actually honors the parents because the kids believe that something good's going to come. So that sense of waiting for the return of Christ honors the Lord. But remember, it's not long according to the Lord's timing. A second response to that question, what do we make of this long wait? We learn in verse 9 and verse 15 in our text this morning that that this long wait is an expression of the patience of our Lord. Verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. How are we to understand this long wait? It's, it's an expression, it's a revelation, a manifestation of the patience of the Lord. We're groaning along with creation We groan about the wickedness going on in the world, the pain and the sorrow and the heartache, the abuse. And if we groan at it, oh, we should believe that God who is holy, that for him to forbear and to wait and forestall his judgment is is for him not difficult, but as an expression of his omnipotence and his character, only he can restrain his own righteous wrath. It's an expression of his patience. Peter has emphasized this in verse 9. The Lord is patient toward you. It's not slow about his promise, but he's patient. And he restates it in verse 15. Regard the waiting period as an expression of the holy patience of God. Thirdly, and closely related, This long wait is for the purpose of salvation. Again, verse 9 and verse 15. In verse 15, Peter just restates what he had said in verse 9. This is, regard the patience of the Lord, verse 15, as salvation. Salvation for who? Salvation for any 
and all who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And God alone knows at the end of the day all those who will come, but he knows them, and he's not going to lose one of them. God gave a gift to his son, and Jesus in John 10 spoke of how the Father gave him a mission not to lose any of his sheep. God and the Son, the Father and the Son, will not lose, not a one. And so it's like we're on the boat and we're waiting for the boat to leave dock. But God is not going to have the boat leave until every single one he has determined will come to faith is on the boat. He won't leave any behind that are his. It's for the purpose of salvation. And so, yes, we should be active in telling others about Christ. There was a time not long ago when the reality of the soon rapture of the church, the coming of the Lord at any moment, motivated evangelism and missions. And it should. Because we don't know when the boat is leaving the dock. And it doesn't mean that no one can be saved after the church is raptured. We learn, actually, in Revelation that there are are many who come to faith in Jesus Christ during the seven-year tribulation period. But nonetheless, we are to be motivated and active in sharing the gospel so that as many as possible escape the day of the Lord, the day of wrath that Peter has talked about. And so this long wait is... Not long according to the Lord's timing. It's an expression of his patience. And it is for the purpose of salvation. And fourthly, and finally, we can answer to this first question. What do we make of this wait, of this long wait? Well, it's, it's spoken of by the prophets and by the other apostles, including Paul. This is what Peter says in verse 15, the second half of verse 15. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as in all his letters. In other words, what Peter is saying, Paul also taught you about the timing of the Lord's coming and and the sequence of events that needs to take place. And Paul, in his teaching, alluded to the fact that we didn't know when these things would come about, but that we were to wait expectantly. So what Peter is saying is this long wait, this this experience we have right now as Christians should not be a surprise to us. It's not just Peter who's talking to us about this, but it's Paul. And in fact, it's John, the, the apostle in the book of Revelation. And in fact, if you go to the prophets, it's Zechariah, it's Daniel, it's Isaiah, it's Jeremiah, it's Ezekiel. This shouldn't surprise us that God has a plan that is unfolding in the time of history and so we should understand God is right on schedule he has purposes we don't know the timing but this is not one big accident I'm embarrassed to say that in my life I've been one of those people that is I, I struggle to be on time I'm embarrassed to say it and and I've worked on it, and I'm a lot better than I used to be. God has never been late. He doesn't have to work on his timing. It's not a character flaw that he has. 
When he says he will do things according to his way and that he has determined the end from the beginning, we should believe him. So this is Peter's point. We should not be surprised by the long wait. In other words, what seems to us to be a long wait, our waiting for the Lord should not be cause for discouragement in a believer's life. Don't let false teachers or even your own unbelief put in your head that somehow uh, these things are not going to come to pass. That would be a very bad conclusion. Think about somebody in Noah's day. Noah, we learn in Hebrews, was a preacher of righteousness. And uh, Peter's referred to the flood in, in, early, in this letter as well. God had revealed to Noah that a great judgment was coming upon the earth and that Noah was to build a massive uh, structure we called the ark. And uh, that wasn't a one or two year boat project. Uh, there was no large uh, boatyard. He couldn't go over to Portsmouth or up to Bath, Maine and, and have, have a whole crew work on it, just him and his sons. And while apparently he was building that massive structure, he was a preacher of righteousness. He, people would ask, what are you doing? What, what, what's, what? Noah's lost his mind. He would apparently, as he had opportunity, preach repentance. You need to repent of your unbelief and your disobedience because a great judgment is coming, a flood upon this earth. Well, Noah lived over 600 years before that flood came. What if you heard him preaching about it in his hundreds? And then you came back in his, when Noah was having his 300th birthday, you think, I remember 150 years ago, Noah was talking to me about some flood that was coming. I mean, hey, it's been over a century now. Has anybody seen a flood? What a joke. It would have been a really bad idea to conclude that just because several centuries had gone by that the flood wasn't coming. And uh, if you doubt that, just go see, apparently, the Grand Canyon. I haven't yet. I hope some of you have seen it. But you just stand there and you see, okay, yeah, there was a flood. So, we should not allow this long waiting period discourage our faith. Second question I want to uh, look at this morning. What do we make of the challenge of understanding Paul's prophetic teaching? This is what Peter talks about in verse 16. He says that Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to these believers. So he must be referring to letters like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, for example. He, Paul and Peter are writing to many of the same people. The letters are going around to the churches. And Peter says in verse 16, in uh, these, first of all, he says that Paul was speaking of them, of these, in his letters, of these things. Now, the question is, what are these things? The most natural reading is that Peter, Paul, Peter is referring to Paul's writings on the future things to come. That's all Peter's been talking about. He's been talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the judgment of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord, waiting for the Lord, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking for these things. And he's saying, my brother, my beloved brother and fellow apostle Paul also wrote to you about these things. 
and some of in which some things are hard to understand. So uh, many Christians, unfortunately, are discouraged by biblical prophecy, and they conclude that it's impossible to come to any hard and fast um, conclusions. Well, what do we make of this? First, we're on our second question, and here's my first answer to that second question. Uh, how, do we, how do we understand Because the challenge? Because some things are hard to understand. Well, first of all, uh, some things are hard to understand. Some things are hard to understand. I'm so glad Peter wrote that. I am so glad that verse is in the Bible. Isn't that encouraging to you? It's not all easy. Some things are hard to understand. That is the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, telling us that some of the things that the Holy Spirit had written to us are, in fact, a little hard to understand. Phew, I'm not as dumb as I thought I was. I think some things are actually difficult. Well, what an encouragement. How kind of the Holy Spirit to include that. It's the, but I want you to notice, that this, he's not saying they're, not, they're impossible to understand. He didn't say that. They're impossible. No. But challenging. Challenging. Okay, good. That's humbling, but that, that just comforts me. Some things are hard to understand. Secondly, what are we to make of this challenge? Not only are they hard to understand, so that's that's a comfort to us, but they are at the same time clear and should not be distorted. Verse 16, they are clear and should not be distorted. Peter says, yeah, some things are hard to understand, verse 16, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of Scripture's. So be careful. Just don't take up that line that is so common today about what the Bible says about future things. Don't take up that line, well, nobody can figure it out. Because you are implicating Holy Scripture. And you are essentially saying God gave it a real good try. But at the end of the day, it was a flop when he tried to reveal to his children, to men and women, the promises about the things to come. You do not want to find yourself in the position of undermining the doctrine of the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. It's a very helpful verse on that doctrine, by the way. Some things are hard to understand. That's why we have trained and gifted Bible scholars and teachers. That's why we need to be careful and be humble and understand that there is a skill and maturity and learning to interpret the word of God. But at the same time, the Bible is clear in what it speaks to. God did not speak to us in Babel. But he gave us words that we can know and understand. So, uh, some things are hard hard to understand. But they are, at the same time, what the Bible says about future things are clear and should not be distorted. Thirdly, to this second question, there are many false teachers who distort scriptural teaching 
to their own destruction. I'm really restating what Peter says there. These are these untaught and unstable. These are these unprincipled men down in verse 17. They twist and distort the scriptures. And notice that the consequence is extremely severe to their own destruction. Now, here's a question that we've, some of us have, have talked about recently. Where's the line between a, a teacher just getting it off wrong a little bit so that he's still saved and a teacher that's teaching the word wrong so that they're destroyed? Well, God ultimately is the judge of that. But notice how serious it is to get the scriptures right. This is why Paul's exhortation to Timothy to be a, an approved workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. It is serious business. And so we should not be surprised, though, that adding to the difficulty sometimes of understanding prophetic scripture and particularly what Paul says, maybe, like in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. I want to turn there in just a moment. But, but we should understand that there are many false teachers, and it, we shouldn't be shocked that there is confusion because Satan has added confusion. Um, I, I meant to do this earlier, but just for an example of what Paul's teaching, turn for, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 13, here's an example of Paul writing about these things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This passage, by the way, should be one of those passages in the New Testament that you're very familiar with. Some of the clearest teaching on the biblical doctrine of the rapture of... uh, are going to be with the Lord and then ultimately his returning to this earth. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, Paul wrote, about those who are asleep. These are Christians who died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, So those believers who are dead in the ground, uh, they get to get on the the, uh, boat first, or the plane, or the cloud, right? It's just about um, who's first in line. Then, verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Now, the word for, by the way, the, 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 I, you hear me using the word rapture. And we live in a day and age in which among evangelical Christians, increasingly the word rapture is, is almost, you're almost embarrassed to say it. I won't get through the, how we, the translation, but it's just simply the word that is uh, translating or summing up 
what Paul teaches there. We will be caught up. We, we will be raptured together with these believers in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul goes on in chapter 5 to speak of the, the times and the epochs and the day of the Lord. And so it can be somewhat challenging to uh, take what the scriptures have to say about the coming of Christ and the rapture and so forth and to understand the full picture of what the Bible is teaching. But the teaching of the Bible is clear enough that it should not be distorted. This is why I have such a passion to try in my teaching to show you where I'm getting what I'm getting from. Because I want you to see that the power and the clarity and the meaning is not in some human head, but is in the text. That's where the meaning is. That's where the ministry is. That's where God's word is. It is God's word. And it can be understood. So don't get too discouraged by what the Bible has to say and Paul has to say about end times. Some things are hard to understand, but don't go so far as you join the crowds of those who are saying in these days, well, who can understand? Because when you do that, you actually begin distorting the clarity of Scripture, and you don't want to be in that group because they're headed for destruction. Well, thirdly, and the final question we want to ask this morning, and this has been another emphasis of Peter, is in light of these truths, what are we to do? What are we to do? So, The day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of wrath upon this earth in which God is going to burn up the heavens and the current earth and judge the ungodly. We've learned that Christ is certainly coming. We've learned this morning from Paul that we are going to be raptured at any moment to meet the Lord in the clouds, to be with him forever. So what do we do in response to this? What sort of people ought we to be? This has been an emphasis. Four, four truths. And again, this morning, what, I, what I'm trying to do, I, I know this is not necessarily a riveting, brilliant outline, but if you pick up on what I'm doing, I'm starting in verse 15, and we're just breaking down every line, and we're gleaning from it the truth. I hope this is helpful. So in light of these great and glorious truths, what are we to do? You've got a week ahead of you, and so do I. I don't know if the Lord's returning for us this week. Oh, but that'd be great. Huh? Uh, Today would be wonderful. But if he doesn't, what do we do? First, remember we are beloved of God, not left behind. And I'm intentionally using that phrase. Some of you may be familiar with that series that was written years ago. I never actually read it myself, but we, we are not left behind. God hasn't moved on. We are beloved. Where am I getting that? Verse 17, you therefore beloved. There you go again. Peter, the apostle Peter. Old hard Peter. Remember him back in the Gospels? He was the guy who didn't seem to care about anybody's feelings. He would just open his mouth. He doesn't, you you get a sense that Peter was necessarily the kind of nice, sensitive type. 
bullheaded. And here we find him softened by the gospel and by the grace of God as an old man. Now he understands God and and the Father and the Son's love for him. And he understands these people he is writing to are loved of God. And he says, so you therefore beloved. I'm just really repeating a point from last Sunday morning. You are beloved. And no matter dear, true, sincere believers in Jesus Christ, what your week was past, you are still beloved this morning in Christ. You are beloved. We got to remember that. God hasn't forgotten us. He knows we're here. He knows we're living in these days. He knows it's difficult. He knows it's dark. He knows we're tested and tried. He knows when we are loved. Secondly, remember that we were told there would be many false teachers. Verse 17 Do not be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. Be on your guard. We've been told. So it's very tempting to be discouraged in our day by the multiplication of cults, by the multiplication of false versions of the gospel. I mean, we really, we look at it, we look at the number of clearly aberrant uh, views of the gospel. We we look at the number of so-called Christian faiths that add their own books written by some man to the Bible. We look at the number of churches that have so clearly departed from the word of God. And we're amazed. Well, we need to be strengthened in comfort. Remember, we were told it would be this way. Don't be shocked. Don't be disheartened. This is a war. And Satan is real. And evil powers and forces in the heavenlies are real. The game is live. The battle is on. There is no such thing as, as a, a non-conflict zone. We are in the middle of a spiritual war, and this is how Satan fights. He multiplies false teachers. So don't be shocked by it. There are many unprincipled men. And that I could, we could spend a lot of time just on that phrase. This is the second time Peter's used it to describe false teachers. But one of the distinctives between a true pastor teacher and a false one is a true biblical pastor teacher begins with biblical principles, has them clear in his mind, and then conducts his ministry according to the principles, not according to his own mind or his own desires, and not according even to what people like. And he doesn't adjust his biblical principles based on whether it's received or not, whether it's comfortable or not. These are a true pastor teacher and true teachers in the church are first and foremost, as men of Christ, they have certain principles by which they interpret the word and by which they teach the word. But unprincipled men, what do you want? They'll give it to you. Uh, what will bring people into the church these days? Let's do that. Uh, I, I've shown, I think I've referenced this several times, but I'm still just amazed. I've shown a few of the young men in a study uh, we had a few weeks ago that we've been, I've been meeting with uh, a local large church in which uh, this past spring, the senior pastor, who's very popular, listened to by thousands of people in New Hampshire, uh, got up to speak in a, a, a rodeo clown outfit. 
in order to teach the Old Testament stories. I'm not making this up. Um, I mean, literally, a full-blown rodeo clown outfit to preach. Why is he doing that? Because he does not have a prior principle that God has spoken in his word, and it needs to be taught whether or not people like it or not. And so he's trying to appease people, modify the word, and dress it up, and people like a show, right? People like a show. Unprincipled men. So we were told it would be that way. We shouldn't be surprised. Don't let ourselves be overly discouraged by it. So we are not left behind. We are beloved. We were told there would be many false teachers. We are... Perhaps most importantly, to remain steadfast in our devotion to Scripture and what it teaches. Your own steadfastness. What is this steadfastness? This is back in chapter 3, verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior. He's, He's urging us by the Holy Spirit to stick to the Scriptures. I had a preaching professor many years ago in seminary as we were teaching, as we were taught how to preach the Bible and as we formed our outlines and something I'll never forget, if, if he felt like our outline didn't stick too close to the scripture, he would come to us and say, your outline needs to be a little bit more like this. In other words, your, the Bible's got to be closer to your outline. You've got to stick to it, stay close to it. Don't have your Bible way over here in your outline or your notes or your thoughts way over here. S- stay to the Scriptures and what it teaches concerning the things to come and everything else it teaches. That means that sometimes yeah, you'll have questions, mysteries. For example, our... our Church teaches that God is sovereign in, chal- in, in, in salvation, that yes, he elects men and women to be saved, and we teach that men and women are responsible to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, to repent and trust. They are responsible. God is sovereign and mankind is responsible. How does that fit together? I don't know. The Bible teaches it, but I'm okay with the mystery. Uh, there's aspects, I, questions I have about, um, for example, what Ezekiel teaches about a future millennial temple. Nine chapters in Ezekiel about this future temple. As an Old Testament scholar, I appreciate Walter Kaiser. Point, I listened to a video of him recently. He said, if God takes nine chapters in his word, it's not a minor point. And yet there's sacrifices. Well, I don't The perennial question is, well, how do, we, how do we explain the teaching in Hebrews about the finished once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the fact that apparently in the millennial temple, among a renewed Israel and Judah, there will be some form of worship using sacrifices? I don't know. Is that okay? It's, it's okay. I have questions. What I do know is nothing in that future temple and those sacrifices, nothing that takes place will undermine or undo the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is, fin- that is absolutely clear in Hebrews. So somehow God's got it. It's, it's okay. And I have thoughts and others do about how those two uh, are, 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 are compatible. But the point is, is that as we stick to the scriptures, that means there's going to be areas where we 
honestly don't have all the answers, and we live with that. And we just trust God's got it figured out. We receive the word as written, and we don't distort it, and we hold fast to it, all of it, even the parts we don't like. We want to be whole Bible people. Fourthly and finally this morning, in light of these truths, what are we to do? We remember that we are beloved of God. We remember that we were told there would be many false teachers, so we're not disheartened or disillusioned. We remain steadfast in our devotion to Scripture and what it teaches. And fourthly and finally, Peter says, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. We are responsible as believers for our own growth. Now, those who are pastor teachers like myself, we are very accountable to God and responsible to provide the nourishment by which you can grow. We are to feed the flock. We are to feed the sheep. We are to provide the word so that you, like Peter says in 1 Peter, like newborn babes can long for and crave the milk of the word of God. We have a responsibility. You, though, as an individual believer, have a command here, a responsibility to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a bit of an aside, but it is related. I I am finding in the day and age we are in, it is extremely tempting for you as believers with the, with the uh, consumer culture we're in, with the wonderful automation of a lot of things that are provided for us, increasingly I find that individuals, believers in Jesus Christ, come to the church and think that if somehow I just kind of get myself there, that something will happen to me. And that I don't really have to do anything, but it's job of the church somehow to grow me in the grace and knowledge. It is the job of the church to provide the materials. But you, verse 18, you see, I'm not making this up. You, but you, believers, you beloved believers, beloved of God, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You're growing in the grace means that you're remembering who he is how God has provided him for you. You're learning knowledge of our Lord. You're learning about our Lord. You're learning about his ways. And he is, again, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't split him up. He can't be your Savior and not your Lord. This is what we do. This is our lives. This is what I want to be doing now. This is 20 years from now. If Christ has not returned if you ask me, I hope I know you watch me. I hope I'm growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're never done growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ until either he comes for us, we meet him in the clouds, or we die and our spirit goes to be with him. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, this is what we are to do. In closing, let's just meditate for a moment on that last phrase. It closes the letter. I mean, you need a way to close a New Testament letter, and that's a pretty powerful way to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. It is a what we call a doxology. It is an ascription of praise to God and to Christ. 
and, and specifically right here to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But notice that Peter is insistent that the glory of Christ is not merely in the past and it is now that Christ has a glory now and that his glory will continue on to this day of eternity. What is that? That is when this present age is over. This is after, ultimately, the millennial reign of Christ. This is what Peter had spoken above, about the new heavens and new earth. Verse 13, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. That is the day of eternity. When God makes a new earth and a new heavens in which righteousness dwells, and it dwells world without end. And Peter is, by faith, looking at what the Bible has to say about that, and he's praising Jesus Christ for it. There's glory in Christ in eternity past, in redemptive history, present right now at the right hand of the Father, and there will be in the millennial reign, and there will be in the day of eternity. May it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this little letter written by your servant, your slave, Peter. We marvel to see the changes in him that took place, how he went from being a a rather hard man to being so tender and pastoral. We thank you for using him to teach us so much these past several months by your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we do recognize you are the ultimate giver of the word and the teacher. And we pray now solemnly as we close our study of this little letter that you would help us to heed the things that we've heard and learned. May we truly hold fast to your scriptures. Oh God, may I and may every teacher in this church teach only what is true according to your word. May you keep far from us distortions May we be principled men and women in our lives and in our interpretation of Scripture. And we pray most of all that, that God, you might grant to us a perseverance in growing in the grace and knowledge of your dear, glorious Son, our Lord and Savior. Christ, we pray with anticipation. We long for your coming when we will see with our resurrected eyes the visible reality of your presence, of your kingdom. But we believe your word that you are glorious even now. And so help us to live in light of your kingdom and of your glory. We ask this for your glory, that we may be witnesses in this dark present time. Amen.